Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a talk from James Jordan on the heresy of hyperpreterism. As always, you can take a look at those links down there in the show notes for our upcoming events. We have our summer conference coming up in the month of July on the topic of love. Peter Lighthart is teaching a regional course here in Birmingham in May on Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And Paul Buckley and I will be in both Monroe, Louisiana, and Chicago teaching our course on how to sing the Psalms. For more information about all of those events and to register, there are links down there in the show notes. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing hyperpreterism. This is the lecture titled, The Heresy of Hyperpreterism, or Why Jesus Must Come Again at the End of History. I don't have time to do a two-hour job on this, so I'm going to quickly run through these notes and focus on a couple of things that I think are important. I don't know that this issue is in the forefront of the minds of many of you anyway, but when we originally set this conference up, the idea was to provide kind of a briefing on a range of topics concerning preterism for people who didn't know anything about the subject, but we didn't get anybody in that category to come, so I don't know how necessary some of the stuff, I mean, it's all good, but in some ways, some of the topics and some of the things we're covering aren't quite as necessary, and we can expand on them a little bit and tinker with the schedule. At any rate, I do think that this is going to be an increasingly important issue. Over the last 15 years, I've watched a number of Calvinistic and evangelical friends go off into the Roman Catholic Church. I would never have expected them to do it. But they tell me that they get interested in it, and one day they pray to Mary, and all of a sudden they see the light, and now they talk to Mary all the time. And I see the same kind of thing happening here. Guys get interested in preterism, and then one day they decide that the world's never going to end. There's never going to be a physical resurrection. There's never going to be a last judgment. And they've seen the light. I don't think they have. But it seems as if one person after another goes this way. David Chilton went this way. At the same time, David went Eastern Orthodox and wrote an article, said, I'm going to join the Eastern Orthodox Church, and I'm already worshiping icons, and whenever my wife gets around to it, we're going to go Eastern Orthodox. And then he said, that, by the way, there's never going to be a second coming, and there's no physical resurrection at the end of history. Well, Dave, uh, now he's gone. He can't defend himself. But I've known too many people like this. It seems as if it's one of these things that's moving through. So it's worth talking about. What is then hyperpreterism? Well, it's the denial that the Bible predicts the final corporate or collective judgment of humanity at the end of history and a denial of the physical resurrection of all human beings at this event. Two cardinal teachings of historic Christianity. I call it hyperpreterism. I think that's usually what it's called. It's uh, analogous to hyper-Calvinism. Some people call it pantelism and the idea that somehow or other all things have already taken place. Or going to the New Testament, Hymenaeus, who said the resurrection had already happened, they call it Hymenaeanism. I don't think pantelism and Hymenaeanism communicate real well to the man in the street who will immediately understand hyperpreterism when he hears it. <laughs> The people who are in this school of thought 
like to call themselves consistent preterists or just plain preterists because they say this is better. Well, I guess as an ism, if you want to call it an ism, the term would fit. But historically, preterism doesn't mean a denial of the second coming in the traditional doctrines of the last judgment, but it's a general approach to biblical interpretation. So I want to stick, I don't want to change the historic, generally understood meaning of the term, and I think hyperpreterism or extreme preterism is valid. It's the word I'll use. Where does this come from? As far as I know, nobody in the history of the church ever even thought of advocating such a thing until the late 19th century. The Congregationalist writer named J. Stuart Russell published a book called The Parousia, in which he tried to prove that every single prediction in the New Testament, without exception, was fulfilled in A.D. 70, and so that the Bible doesn't teach any type of a last judgment or universal resurrection at the end of history. He left the question open. He didn't say he was sure that that wouldn't happen, but he said that he didn't see it anywhere in the Bible. More recently, and I think probably more importantly, a man within the church, one of the groups within the Churches of Christ named Max King published a couple of books arguing that this world goes on forever and there's no physical resurrection at the end of history. In recent years, a number of people have switched over to this kind of opinion, either following King or making variants of his position Within these circles, there's lots of disagreement about this, that, or the other, but in general, that seems to be it. There have been some critiques published of it. I put out a couple of tapes in 1986, which are still available, and I, should, I guess I should bring them up here and put them on the book table. Two tapes dealing with Russell's book, especially hermeneutically. Russell has a very simplistic way of reading the symbolism of the Bible, he just, every time the same symbol is used, it means exactly the same thing or refers to the same thing. And when he gets to things like 1 Corinthians 15 and the like, he gets real bizarre trying to fit that in. So those were some things that I pointed out there. I also dealt with Max King, who only had one book out at the time, and King's first book is very thoroughly Gnostic. I mean, King is operating on a matter-spirit dualism in this book and saying, well, matter, physical stuff, that was for the old world and now we're spiritual. He wrote another book later on where he tried to pull back from that and refine it. And I think since that time, especially since some more Reformed people have switched over into this opinion, that strong anti-material spirit in the Greek sense, bias has moved out of these circles to an extent. But I find that when you scratch underneath, you often find it. Are you really saying that we're going to have physical bodies that eat food and sweat and urinate in the world to come? And that animals are going to be resurrected in the world to come? Well, yeah, I, I'm going to say that. So I think that scandalizes a lot of people. Uh, we want some type of airy-fairy body in the world to come. I don't want an airy-fairy body. I want a meaty body. And I'm planning to have one. Also, in 1986, there was a THN thesis critical of this view published by, uh, put out or written by Richard White. And it's fairly good. It was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Those are the only two larger treatments of the issue that I know of. Otherwise, you've got a few short essays here and there by Ken Gentry or some other guys, the guys at the Calcedon Foundation. 
Andrew Sandlin put out some little things, but no large term dealing with it and large scale, and I can't do that today either. Now, is this merely an intramural debate? Is this something that good Christians can discuss? Or have you stepped outside the faith when you deny the second coming? Well, the reason I call this a heresy is that objectively speaking, it is. This isn't on the same level as the disagreement over the meaning of the Nazarite vow. Because every branch of the church, in every age of the church, has always said, has always positioned the doctrine of a physical resurrection and a last judgment event as a central doctrine of Christianity. So departing from this is like departing from the virgin birth, or it's like departing from the Trinity. It's one of those things that is always included among the seven or eight biggies. So it's not a minor matter. Objectively speaking, in terms of the voice of the church historically, you don't disagree with this one without being called a heretic. It would be nice if you didn't have to use this language, but I don't know how to avoid it. Now, does that mean the people who advocate this ought to be considered heretics and they're all going to go to hell? No, not necessarily. I mean, Christians can get into all kinds of strange ways of thinking. But this is not a disagreement that is intramural. It's right on the borderline between... Christianity and something else, according to the universal teaching of the church, which is important, because the ascended Christ sends gifts to the church, and those gifts are apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers who author these things and agree with each other down through the centuries, and you don't set that aside. I would feel much more comfortable if, when I read the literature coming from various of these guys, if they said... You know, when we read the New Testament, it looks as if all these passages are talking about A.D. 70. We're not real sure exactly how to get the traditional doctrine out of this, so could we discuss it? If that was the spirit that came through, I'd feel much more comfortable. But when what you seem to be reading is creeds and traditions of the church, that doesn't mean anything. That's kind of a Catholic way of thinking. And we have looked at this for ten years, and we're now convinced that there is no second coming, and this is almost a crusade with a great new opinion, and we've got new light here. That makes me much more nervous about the entire scenario. That's not the attitude we want to have when we take exception to the testimony of the Spirit on something as central as this. What the Spirit has said is central. Now, tonight, I'm going to take issue with most preterists in how I read the book of Revelation. I think there's only one birth in Revelation that refers to the destruction of Jerusalem. And the rest of it is concerned with other stuff. Related to it, of course. But that's an intramural discussion. If I disagree with Ken Gentry and David Chilton over some major themes in Revelation, that's no big deal. But if it's the second coming, what is the church is called the second coming... The last judgment, the future, physical resurrection, and a universal judgment, a transformation of the cosmos, that's something else. So I don't reject as Christians people who have gotten into this opinion, but I think they've made serious mistake and they ought to be real careful. Well, that's to start with just to set the terms. 
Now, some of what I have down here, because of time, I don't want to do a whole lot with. One of the things, and as, as I said, there are different people writing on this with different emphases. Well, one thing that you get is, of course, if there is no second coming, then this world goes on forever. It continues to grow and develop, and people are born. People are born with sinful natures under the judgment of death, but they're converted and the church continues to grow, and this is just going to keep on happening forever and ever, and I guess we'll visit the stars and spread out through the universe, and the universe is expanding, and it's just never going to end. That's the model that is proposed. But the Bible indicates other things in the imagery it uses. Matthew 13:33, speaking of the leavening of the bread, leavening of bread doesn't go on forever. Leaven hidden into three measures of meal, leavens it until it stops rising. And then it's baked. It comes to an end. Similarly, this parable preceding that in Matthew 13:31 to 31-32 tells us that the mustard seed grows into the largest tree, but trees don't just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger any more than human beings do or cats do. You grow to a certain size and you stop because of the morphic resonance that you have all the others of the same species. Trees grow and then they're grown. There's an end of the process of growing and then something else happens. That's the way this world is made. Things grow to a certain point of fullness of development and then something else has to happen. If you take bread and you leaven it and you don't do anything with it, it'll rot. You gotta let it leaven and then you gotta bake it. Or it's all over. Same with trees. Trees grow to a certain size. If you don't cut them down and make a piano out of them, they'll just rot and fall down and go in the ground again, you see? The way this world is made, things develop to a certain point and then there has to be a transformation. Those are the analogies Jesus uses. In 1 Corinthians 15:25, he must reign until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. You have the same language in Hebrews. Well, talking about the development of the ark, which is a footstool. Putting people under his feet is a symbol of conversion. It's not the wicked who are under Jesus' feet. It's the righteous. We hold him up. So this conversion and this development and this formation of the ark, which has the law of God inside of it, that's going to go on but the passage indicates that it will come to a place where it's done. He must reign until all these things take place. If that happened in AD 70, then does he stop reigning then? Is the kingdom given to the Father then? Some would say so, but that becomes a pretty rarefied sense. Jesus does not just become king of Israel. He becomes emperor of the world. Max King says that the new age is the last age and there are no ages after it. But if you look at Ephesians 2, verse 7, you'll find, and this is clearer in the margins, Paul speaks of this as the age of ages. And I would suggest there are at least three clear ages within the age of ages. The first age is the apostolic age from 30 to 70. Then there's the millennium, which we're in right now. And then there's the time after the final judgment. And within that, you could have more ages. But there's, I think, quite clearly in the New Testament, three such ages set out within the new creation age. So that would be one thing, I think, evidence that the Bible expects the kingdom to come to a stopping place 
a point of transfiguration where the world has changed. The second line of argument is from the nature of the resurrection body. 1 Corinthians 15 discusses this. What kind of body is this? Well, Max King in his book on the subject, which takes this up in, well, I don't know how much detail he takes it up. He takes it up very repetitiously, insists that the resurrection of the body spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15 has to do with the Jew-Gentile question in the first century. That is, in some way, the death and resurrection of Israel and of the body politic of the church. Well, the Bible definitely does speak in passages of the death and resurrection of the body politic of Israel or the body politic of the church. In fact, I think that's what Revelation 20 is talking about, the first part. And I'll discuss that later. But, what is this passage talking about? Well... When Adam and Eve sinned, they came under death. Death means separation from God. Death means a lot of things, but one of the things it also means is physical death. And as a result, physical resurrection is tied to salvation. And we see this in the Bible. In biblical history, people are physically transported to heaven, Elijah and Enoch, and they're physically resurrected. Elijah resurrects a child, Elisha does, Elisha's bones resurrect a man, Jesus resurrects people, Paul resurrects people. Now, these are not transfigured resurrections. They're just people brought back to life who die again later on, but they're physically resurrected. Language of resurrection is not just the idea of a nation coming back to life again. It's also of individual people's physical bodies coming back to life again. Paul's opponents were arguing for the immortality of the soul, which is a Greek philosophical idea. And they were arguing against the idea of resurrection of a physical body. Now, Max King argues that Paul's opponents would not have denied the physical resurrection, and so that's not an issue here, physical resurrection. But that's to insist that Paul is doing nothing but repeating his opponent's arguments in the passage. Paul starts where Paul wants to start insists on Jesus' physical resurrection and says, as a result of that, all aspects of resurrection, including physical body resurrection, are included in it. King consistently pits corporate resurrection of the church against the individual resurrection of believers, as if you have to choose between the two or as if only one side of that is an acceptable way to think about resurrection. But in fact, they're correlative in the Bible. One relates to the other. And King imports this Jew-Gentile theology into 1 Corinthians when, in fact, it's not there. 1 Corinthians doesn't discuss a Jew-Gentile theology question. Romans does. But the stuff going on in Corinthians is not about that. And it's not in this passage. There's nothing about it here. If you want to talk about the resurrection of Israel, go to Romans 11. It's all there, real clear. Israel, Gentiles, Gentiles, Israel, back and forth, life from the dead. It's all there. That's not the language here at all. There's nothing about Israel, Gentiles, or anything else in this passage, or in the context. No, the context of this is quite different. Acts 17.32 gives us a good example of what these people were talking about. Paul goes to the Athenians and talks to the philosophers. And everything is going good until he mentions the resurrection. 
Verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they began to sneer. Others said, we'd like to hear more concerning this. Why? Well, it wasn't the resurrection of the nation of Israel that caused them to sneer. They didn't care about that. They knew that nations undergo cycles of history. Things come and go. No, it's the idea of physical bodily life in an eschaton that they didn't they thought was crazy. Because to the Greeks the body is just a husk. The body is a tomb. You leave it aside. Your spirit is free. That's what you want. A spiritual existence. That's much more what's involved in First Corinthians fifteen. These people deny a resurrection because they believe in the immortality of the soul. Luke, who is Paul's associate and who writes his gospel at the same time Paul is doing his work so that Luke's gospel is designed to complement the Pauline narratives, makes a great stress on this. Jesus appears to the disciples and says, See my hands and my feet, it's I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it while they watched. Now, you couldn't stress it anymore that this is a physical, biological resurrection. It even involves eating food. It wasn't a mere spirit. What did the people in Corinth believe? Well, you see, this is still an early church. There were all kinds of rumors going around what Jesus did or didn't do, who Jesus was or wasn't, what Jesus' resurrection was like and what it wasn't. Paul sets them straight. Luke sets them straight. Paul's argument is that the physical resurrection of Jesus proves the resurrection of his followers, whether corporately at various times in history, when a church or a nation dies and comes back to life, or individually at the end. Now, I don't have time, I'm not going to take the time to go through this whole passage, just to point out the strong physical language here. He talks about the flesh. He talks about the body. Verses 35. How are the dead raised and what kind of body do they come? It's all flesh is not the same flesh. There's one of man and another. All glory is not the same. Words like flesh, body, and glory are words that emphasize the physicality of these things. He says that this is a spiritual body, and this is way too complicated a passage to go into. I just don't have time to do it. But what is meant by a spiritual body? Well, in biblical context, if you go back to Genesis 1, verse 2, you find that at the moment God created the world, the Spirit is already in the creation. The world never existed without the Spirit being in it. The world, the creation cannot exist without the Holy Spirit being inside of it, energizing it. It's not possible. And when man is made of dust, the spirit goes into man. The physical body is a spirit-energized body. The new body is a spirit-energized body in a new way, but it's still a body. Along these lines, then, I'm going to have to move to the next part, B, Jesus' resurrection body, which ours is like. Our body will be like his. That's the argument in Paul. What is his like? Well, Luke. 24. We've already looked at it. Remember that Luke is a physician. The scriptures emphasize that. I mean, who cares if he's a physician or not? 
The Bible doesn't tell us that Luke was a physician so that we know that, gosh, doctors were involved. That's not the issue. We're not told that for that reason. Or poor Paul, he was sick, so he had to have a doctor go along with him. No, that's not exactly why. It is to emphasize, it's to add something into our theology concerning the physicality and medical aspects of the gospel, that the gospel brings physical healing, as with the anointing of oil and other things, that the fall of man, the rebellion of Adam, resulted in physical disease and distress and sickness. And Jesus in his healings brings physical as well as total healing. And Luke as a physician who is one aspect of what the kingdom package is shows this. And of course, historically, hospitals have developed out of Christianity. Many hospitals in Islam or Hinduism, not till the Christians went there, and they set these kinds of things up. And Judaism, the Jews were great medical people in the Middle Ages. But it's biblical religion that gives rise to it, because the biblical religion takes the body seriously. Luke, as a physician, is the one who says, A spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. Touch me. Jesus is not a spirit. Whatever spirit body is, it's a spirit body. It's something you can touch. It's made of matter. It has atomic structure in it. He says the spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. What is that a reference back to? Genesis 2.23. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Eve is like Adam. So she's bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. Jesus says, this body is like yours. I am like you. See, my hands and my feet, those are attributes of the physical body. Touch me. My hands are like your hand. My feet are like your feet. You've got John coming after Luke. Tells us, isn't it John? Thomas is invited to put his hand in the side, touch it. John gives us Mary Magdalene. Jesus says, stop holding on to me. All of these things indicate a physical resurrection body, not a mere spiritual or vaporous or some type of appearance. This resurrection body eats food. It eats a piece of broiled fish. That's an interesting statement worthy of some meditation. This is still a confirmation. It says in verse 41, when they still could not believe it and were marveling, he says, well, let me confirm it to you guys. Do you have anything to eat? Whoa. Spirits don't need to eat. Spirits are energized directly by the Holy Spirit. They have to eat food, carnal, fleshly, material food, to keep their bodies going. How many of you believe that in the resurrection body, you're still going to be eating food to keep your body going? Is that a new thought? Well, I think that's what this means. See, I think we all have the idea that in our resurrection body, it's just we're just going to get energy from the Spirit, and we won't have to eat food anymore. As right now, you have to eat food to get energy. And then after a while, you get hungry and you eat some more food to get energy. After a while, you get hungry like you are right now, and I, why don't I finish this up? Right? Okay? 
And then uh, there's still donuts out there. I'll put you to sleep, but you can eat them. And you eat more food and you get more energy. Is that the way it's going to be in heaven? Gosh, we're going to have to keep eating to stay alive? Well, if there's loads of food around, it's not a problem. So if the food's just sitting there and there's donuts everywhere, then you can have them whenever you want. But is that really right? Or are we going to be energized directly by the Spirit? Well, where does the Bible ever even hint that there's ever going to be some type of energizing directly by the Spirit? I mean, I know that's in the film 2001. You don't eat food anymore. Now we're just getting energy from the stars. But that's not what is indicated here. Jesus does this as a proof of what the resurrection body is like. Now you can say, oh, well, he eats a fish because that represents the Gentiles and this means a Gentile mission. Sure, there's wider dimensions of this, but actually the text says it was to prove that he was not a mere spirit. Now let me ask you, what happened to that fish that Jesus ate? Well, when he left, the fish just kind of dropped out and landed on the floor. Is that it? No, I don't think so. No, what happened to that fish was it got digested and it went and it replaced some of the molecules in Jesus' body. And then what happened to the molecules that were being replaced? Well, they got evacuated out of the body. Jim, are you saying, yep, I am? Sure looks that way to me. Why not? I can't be dogmatic about this, but if I'm going to put my engine on the railroad tracks that the Bible sets forth and think along those lines, these are the kind of thoughts I'll have. Now, it's true that everything that comes out of our bodies in this world stinks. Sweat stinks. Your breath stinks. And the other things that come out of your body smell bad. But I don't think that would have been true if we hadn't sinned. And if in the resurrection, you know, if Jesus ate this fish and later on he passed some of the rest of his stuff out of his body, I mean, we're not just going to get fatter and fatter and bigger and bigger the more we eat. We'll have to pass stuff out. Who says that'll be unpleasant in any way? The food is always there and every meal is better than the one before? Think about it. We have to think physically because this is physical. Oh, we shy away from it. Oh, well, now... We know that there's no marriage in the world to come. But there's nothing about no eating. See, even sexuality in human life doesn't start until you're in your teenage years. And if you live long enough, it goes away. But eating starts as soon as you're born, and it never stops. It's a different thing. So just because Jesus says they don't get married in heaven, that we have some type of love relationship with everybody that's like our marriage relationship here, doesn't say anything about whether we eat in the world to come. Now, not can I be absolutely dogmatic about this? No. But I want to stress it to make you think as concretely as possible about the implications of this passage. It seems to me what Jesus is saying is that in the resurrection, we'll be eating food, fish. I don't think we'll be eating birds and mammals and land animals. Because they breathe. I think all those things are going to be resurrected. God cares for those animals, and they're going to be brought to life again. All the lions and tigers and cats and dogs and birds that ever lived will have resurrection bodies and be with us in the world to come. But fish, hey, we'll be eating those babies in the world to come. That's interesting 
reflections on that. But why would we deny that God... Animals talk. Animals have self-consciousness. You know your animals talk. The Bible shows us that they talk. Their tongues are loose, they speak. They don't speak creatively. They aren't lawgivers, but they can talk. And you know they can if you have a dog or a cat. You can have a conversation with them. They can get through. There's no difficulty here. They're persons in the secondary sense. The Bible even says that if an ox commits a crime, you put the ox to death the same way you would a person. The Bible treats these things as persons, these kinds of creatures as persons, and says God cares about them, and his eye is on them, and he watches them. So why would they just be annihilated? I don't think they'll be annihilated. Why would I want to think that? What would lead me to think that? Everything the Bible says about animals would lead you to believe they'll be resurrected and glorified, that their lives have meaning. The only reason you would think, oh, no, that's crazy, Jim. The only reason you'd think that is because you're Gnostic. If we did not have any influence from pagan thinking in our minds and just read the Bible, we would expect in the world to come that everything is returned and glorified. The historic church has taught, hasn't taught anything specific about animals, but plenty of people have in the historic church. It's not in the creeds. It's an open discussion, but I'm giving you my opinion. Did you have a question, Jeff? There must be food in heaven. See, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe we need to eat, maybe we don't need to eat. But it's worth considering. He's able to eat and he does it to prove the nature of the resurrection body. That is a body that can process food. And processing food is a biological activity, somehow. So I think the resurrection body is closer to what we have now than we tend to think it is from this passage. Uh-huh. Quick. Yes, this is what's interesting because usually you get a, you know, the Eucharist is vegetarian and all the imagery of eating this eschatological is vegetarian except this, which is why I thought, well, maybe fish, since they don't breathe, are closer to vegetables <laughs> than things that do breathe. Noah's Ark as a picture of the salvation of the world and the transformation of the world took animals along with it. It doesn't say it took plants on it or fish. <laughs> well, the glorification is usually associated with the resurrection, not with the ascension. So this will be a glorified body. I only wanted to introduce the speculations in order to tweak you, to expose to you how naturally we in our culture are prejudiced against these ideas. We think, oh, well, how would why would animals be raised? Surely people don't eat in the world to come. But the Bible doesn't think that way. The Bible does it a different way. So the presumption would be we do eat in the world to come. The presumption would be animals are brought back with us. If they aren't, then that's God's business. Yeah, it's always pictured as a feast. Every, es every eschatological picture is pictured as a feast. I've got to switch gears here from the resurrection body to another couple of avenues of thought. One is the firmament, 
If you look in Genesis chapter 1, we won't do it, but God makes the world with heaven and earth, and they're face to face. And light is put in here. And that light is going to shine up and down. And if you're on the earth, you can see heaven. And if you're in heaven, you can see the earth. And that's true for 24 hours. And then God puts a firmament in between the two to where you can't see them, like this cloud. Is that the way it's always going to be? Well, it would seem not. It would just flow from this fact itself that it's not. This firmament eventually becomes a place where sun, moon, and stars are located. But if you look in Revelation chapter 21, you find that the New Jerusalem is called a star and its position between heaven and earth and apparently replaces it. Exactly what that means in terms of physical construct, I don't know. But I do know that if everything that's implied in the Bible has been fulfilled in A.D. 70, why is there still a blue sky out there? Why don't I look up and see heaven? That is the configuration of things that will be true after this hidden factor is finally removed. That's implied there. And it's implied by the meaning of the veils of the tabernacle and the temple. Rebecca puts a veil on her face when she sees Isaac so he can take it off when the marriage takes place. And the removal of the veils in the temple at the death of Jesus indicates that the marriage is beginning to take place between God and his people. But there is a progress of the marriage, and it's in your notes here, and I'm not going to do it except to point out that according to the book of Revelation and according to the parables of Jesus, the wedding ceremony is something that takes place from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70, where the bride is being formed. Revelation 19 says the bride is ready and the marriage supper starts. The marriage supper is not the end of the wedding. When the supper is over and all the guests go home and the husband and wife go off together to their room and the marriage is consummated, that's the end. This marriage has not been consummated yet. The Bible does not say that. There's a divorce that takes place from the unworthy part, and then the marriage is consummated. If you look at Matthew 22, you'll find the parable there says, Jesus says people are invited to a wedding feast. Finally, a bunch of them don't come, so he burns their city down. He invites others to the wedding feast. So when does the wedding feast start? The wedding feast starts in A.D. 70. It's announced in A.D. 30. People are invited to start to come to the feast until A.D. 70. The feast starts in A.D. 70. Later on, God comes and inspects people and kicks a bunch of them out. It's just one in particular that's mentioned there. There's a judgment that takes place. But a feast does not go on. The feast ends with a consummation. That hasn't happened yet. When you look outside, you'll see the firmament is still there. The New Jerusalem ultimately replaces it. Another line of argument is from the meaning of the temple. The temple in the Bible has seven fundamental meanings. It refers to the physical cosmos, to Israel, to the individual human person, to the Messiah, to the local church, the universal church, and it's also a building. Well, each of these, if you study it out, and this is White's argument against King, undergoes a fiery loaf-baking transformation, a kind of a death and a resurrection. The tabernacle becomes the temple, and then it becomes Ezekiel's temple, and then that becomes the New Jerusalem, and these are by crisis events. The Messiah undergoes such a transformation. Israel's transformation into the church and the new 
covenant in the apostolic age. But more importantly, 1 Corinthians 3, 12, and 13, speaking of the temple of the individual person, says that individual persons face this same kind of an event. And this is something that doesn't end in AD 30, AD 70. It's still true that whether you build with wood, hay, and stubble or gold, silver, and precious stones in the temple of your life, that will be evaluated. With pastors, it'll be how they build their churches. With us, it'll be our individual lives. It follows quite logically from this that if the universal church is a temple, and we've seen that it is. I mean, we didn't see it. It's in your notes here. 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 2. That temple is going to have the same eschatology. And the same is true of the cosmic temple. In other words, the destruction of the physical temple in A.D. 70 implies, actually proves, that the same transformation will take place with what it signifies. And it didn't just signify Israel as a nation. It also signifies the individual person. It also signifies the cosmic universe. These things also will undergo changes appropriate to what they mean. I'm going to have to skip to... Well, I want to make this point, and you'll have to think about it on your own. Six, the brotherhood and the bride. As individuals, we are all sons. All of you ladies are sons of God. And that's why we're brothers, and that's why we're addressed as brothers. But corporately, we're formed into a bride, and we're all part of the bride. And all the men here are part of the bride. We have need to keep this language separate. Individually, we're not brides of Christ. We're all brides of Christ. We're all a bride of Christ. He has one bride, not a whole bunch. As individuals, we're brothers. Well, individually, we experience death and resurrection at the new birth, and that's connected with baptism. That's a form of death and resurrection. Individually, we'll experience with our body. But we're being progressively formed into the bride. And the bride, not just the sons, must go through what the groom went through, suffering, resurrection, and transfiguration. And I just have down here Revelation 14, which is one instance of that when the preliminary apostolic church is now formed up and then dies and is resurrected in a sense. Not in the physical sense of resurrection. Revelation 20, however, links up with 1 Corinthians 15 in showing us a physical resurrection. Now, what's happening in Revelation 20? Revelation 20, it follows after chapter 19. Isn't that clear? If we didn't have these chapters breaks, it would be clearer. Well, what's happened in chapter 19 is after the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus rides forth to conquer and the world begins to be conquered by him. And as part of that process, Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. Now, he was deceiving the nations earlier in Revelation, deceiving them all. But now he's bound from deceiving them all. He can deceive some, but he can't deceive all the nations until the thousand years are completed, and then he can deceive them again, all of them. Thus, this binding of Satan comes after the tribulation period. Then we read this. 
And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, even the souls of those beheaded on account of the testimony of Jesus and on account of the word of God. And those who did not worship the beast or his image and did not receive the mark upon the forehead and upon the hand, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. I'll stop there. John sees two things, and I think this is often not seen, especially since the text is just all jumbled up with these numbers between them. It's not clear what the grammar is here. But John says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw those who did not worship the beast or his image. These are two things he sees here. The first thing he sees are thrones in heaven, which we've already encountered. The 24 archangels were sitting on those thrones at the beginning of the book. And they sit on them. Who is they? Well, in context, it runs back to the army of the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Judgment is given to them, and then it says that they are the ones who were beheaded. That means that they're Nazarites. The Nazarite cuts his head off and puts it on the altar. His hair is called his head. If you know the law, it's his dedicated head, and his dedicated head is offered. And so this means that they're a Nazarite army, those who as Nazarites, suffered the holy war and were victorious and overcame through their suffering. Then he sees those who didn't worship the beast or his image receive the mark on their forehead or on his hand, and they come to life and reign for a thousand years. It doesn't say they judge. It says they reign. It says they reign for a thousand years. There's nothing about any thousand years of those sitting on the thrones. That's going to go on forever. The rest of the dead did not live until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no authority, but they will be priests of God and of the Messiah and will reign with him a thousand years. Where is this? The thrones are in heaven. The resurrection is on the earth. The thrones are where those who are actually dead and have ascended into heaven are. The resurrection is the church corporate on earth that comes to life again after the tribulation. The millennium starts in A.D. 70. The structure of the passage in verse 4, we have heavenly judgment. I saw thrones, they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And it's the departed saints, the souls of those beheaded, the Nazarites, the souls are on those thrones. Then we are pictured earthly saints, those who didn't worship the beast, didn't receive the mark on their hand. It doesn't say their souls, it says them. And they came to life and rule. So this is a resurrection in the earth. So that is the structure of the passage. Now, what often happens is people say the first resurrection is baptism or it's personal regeneration, but that is to import other passages and systematic theology ideas into this passage. In the literary progress of the book of Revelation, this is that church that has died at the end of the apostolic age and that now comes to life again and rules with Messiah during the millennium. We can see this by looking at two things. First, those who ascend to these thrones and when that happened. When did the saints ascend to these thrones in heaven? Well, it was not when Jesus went to heaven. In Revelation chapter 4, 
and 5, Jesus goes up to heaven and there are these 24 angels on these thrones. They cannot possibly be a picture of the church in heaven because the church isn't in heaven. Jesus was the first man to go to heaven, the highest heaven. Jesus has to go there first. And in chapter 6, then, we find that when Jesus ascends to heaven, the saints who are under the altar are not yet there with him. They're at a distance. I saw underneath the altar the souls of those slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony they had maintained. These are Old Testament saints. It doesn't say they were slain because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That refers to Old and New Testament saints. It says the word of God and their testimony. Nothing about Jesus here. And they say, how long is it going to be before you avenge our robe? And they're told to wait until a certain number are added to them. Now, again, if you know the Old Testament, you know where they are. Because the tabernacle and temple is a cosmic model. The Holy of Holies is the highest heaven. This altar in the holy place is underneath the firmament of the highest heaven. And the earth is out here below in this altar. These saints are here. They're in the altar of incense, but they're not in heaven where God's throne is. They're near to it. They can see into it. They're experiencing blessedness in Abraham's bosom in paradise, but they're not in heaven. They have to wait until they're joined by the martyrs of the apostolic church. These people are sealed in chapter 7. In chapter 11, we see the two witnesses who are caught up to heaven. And parallel to that, in chapter 14, we see the apostolic church in its martyrdom, which is caught up to heaven. The two witnesses are parallel to the 144,000 in their martyrdom and ascension. They ascend to heaven, but not yet to the thrones around God's throne. Chapter 15, verse 2 says, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who come off victorious from the beast, from his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass. Not sitting on thrones. They're standing there. And in verse 8 it says, At that time, after the great tribulation, these tribulation saints, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues had been finished. Now what does this give us? The Holy of Holies here has got these 24 thrones around it that the angels were on at the beginning of the book. All of these angels have now left. And now the saints are all out here, right here on this surface here, and they're waiting to go in, but right now nobody's in there except God. His glory fills it. Remember when the glory filled the tabernacle, Moses and Aaron had to leave. That's what's happened here. So... The thrones are vacated. The angels are out of it. We know they are because it says there's nobody in heaven but God. So these 24 thrones are vacated. The angels have left. The people are here, but they haven't come in yet. When is this? A.D. 67? A.D. 68? And in chapter 20, as we see, those thrones are now occupied by the saints. That's after A.D. 70. Thus, the ascension of the dead believers to rule starts in A.D. 70, and thus the millennium starts in A.D. 70, and therefore the millennium ends in a future that has not yet happened. The second thing that we've given in this passage is the resurrection of the apostolic church. As a whole, they are martyred in the Great Tribulation. They are resurrected to reign, not judge, but reign for the thousand years. 
And then there is a future corporate martyrdom after the millennium as the last leaven loaf is baked in the fire. And that's what we see in the next verses. Whenever are completed the thousand years, that doesn't mean they're completed over and over again. It means whenever this happens to take place, it's an undated event. Loosed will be Satan out of his prison and he will go to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, the Gog and Magog to gather them together into the war, of whom the number is like the sand of the sea. They went up upon the breadth of the earth and encircled the camp of the saints, to wit the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceives them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where are the beast and false prophet, and they will be tormented day and night for ages of ages. I've got a chiastic structure that for you here that you can look at later on. This event comes after the millennium. It doesn't say toward the end of the millennium. It says after it. We don't know how long this millennium is going to last. But it will come after it. Satan will be allowed once again to deceive all the nations, which is something he's done earlier in Revelation and is now bound from being done. They are spoken of as the Amalekites. They gather together against the beloved city language that's about to be explained in terms of the marriage city, which is New Jerusalem. So it's New Jerusalem that's going to be surrounded here. That is the church. And the New Jerusalem doesn't appear until AD 70 in this book either. And fire comes down from heaven and destroys them, devours them. And the devil is cast down. And then we have the great white throne judgment and a full judgment of all of human history following that. So I would submit that Revelation 20 quite clearly teaches a final judgment and a final resurrection. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them, the people of those places. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Dead people. Books were open. Another book was open. It's the book of life. Dead were judged from the things that were written in those books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The sea there is the heavenly sea. This refers to the saints coming back to life. Death and Hades gave up the sea that were in them, and they were judged. So there is a final judgment to come. Implied with that final resurrection. I have to say in the conclusion, while most New Testament prophecy directly concerns the events of the apostolic age, A, there are clear prophecies of a future event along the lines that churches has always maintained, and B, the apostolic age prophecies have a microchronic typological relationship to these future events. And I didn't discuss that too much in this abbreviated lecture, but the course of history in the apostolic age is a small version of the larger course of things in the age that we're now in. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is encouraging to us and that although there's lots of room for discussion about these things and issues are raised, that we can discuss them and that we can think about them together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. 
You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.